Well, please, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, we're going to pick up where the Scripture reading left off, starting in verse 50. Luke 23, verse 50. To hear about an interesting interaction that Joseph of Arimathea had with the body of Jesus. Luke 23, starting in verse 50. It says, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. This is quite the interesting thing. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea. He's someone who's mentioned in all four Gospels. There aren't too many things in any of the Gospels that you find in all four Gospels. You have, of course, the birth of Jesus. uh, Jesus coming onto the scene, beginning His ministry. You've got, uh, of course, the death and resurrection of Christ. That's in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels. And you have Joseph of Arimathea. He's in all four Gospels. And I want to start off with just giving you a little bit of biographical information. You can see in verse 50, the text that's in front of us, or verse 51 rather. It just It's like Luke keeps giving us little bits of information. He can't stop. He, you need to know this, you need to know this, you need to know this. But if we draw from all four Gospels, we can get an even fuller picture. Of course, uh, they didn't have last names back then, so he's Joseph of Arimathea. And he's pretty much the only reason we know about this city, Arimathea. We don't know much about Arimathea. The best we can surmise based on historical evidence is that this was a city that was likely not too far from Jerusalem, perhaps 20 miles outside of Jerusalem to the north. That's our best guess. The Gospel of Matthew makes sure to tell us that Joseph was a rich man. He's wealthy, had lots of money. You see here in our text tonight, verse 50, it says he's a member of the council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court of sorts, a very prominent man. And we find out, of course, in this story that he owned some property, some nice property. And that plays a major part in this whole story. Did you catch here in Luke's account where it says, again in verse 50, he was a good and righteous man. He was a good and righteous man. One of the best things that could ever be said of anybody. Good and righteous. Those are two very admirable adjectives. It says, again in Luke's account here, that he did not consent to the Jews' plan. He wasn't going along with this killing of Jesus. He didn't consent to that. He wasn't a part of that plan. In fact, he was a dissenting voice in one way or another. 
But what's interesting is that because of peer pressure, perhaps, we find out from the other Gospels that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. He kept silent about his faith, his belief in Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew, it says that he had become a disciple, but he was a secret disciple. Perhaps in the Gospel of John, the apostle had Joseph of Arimathea in mind when he wrote, this is John chapter 12, many of the rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. It seems as though Joseph struggled with the approval of man. And perhaps for some of you, or dare I say all of us, that makes him a pretty relatable character in the story, doesn't it? His association with Jesus would have resulted in a total loss of status. So much of what he was known for was based on his role in Judaism. He was a ruler, a wealthy ruler, a Supreme Court type wealthy ruler in, Jer in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. And he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Well, it seems like this was the event where Joseph overcame his fear of man. This was a very important event in Joseph's life. Both in Luke's account here and in Mark's account, it tells us that this very interesting phrase, he was waiting for the kingdom of God, the end of verse 51 there. Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. A very interesting description. Like any good Jew, he was praying specifically for the Messiah to come and rule. And it appears that perhaps here in Joseph's life, he started to understand something about the Messiah's rule in God's program. Perhaps the puzzle pieces were starting to fit together in his mind. So there's a little bit of background about Joseph, but I also want to walk you through the order of events of what happened with Joseph and the body of Jesus. He wanted the body of Jesus. Isn't that fact alone just quite interesting? Joseph of Arimathea wanted the body of Jesus. And he asked Pilate for the body. Pilate, of course, was the one in charge. He had to get Pilate's permission to get this body. And the body was given to him. In all four Gospels, there's some sort of description about the interaction that Joseph had with Pilate. He had to talk to Pilate. Bodies of those who were executed were ordinarily given to family members. Those were the ones who would receive the body to bury the body however they would like. Yet in crimes against the state, the state wouldn't give the body to the family. Well, in this case, Joseph gathered up the courage, Mark's account tells us. I love that description. In the Gospel of Mark, he gathered up the courage to go to Pilate, this very famous execution that had just taken place, and he asked for that body, a very bold move. By Joseph. He then prepared the body with linen and spices. We see that in our text this evening with linen cloth and many spices. In John's gospel, and only in John's gospel, do we find out that Joseph wasn't alone during that process, but Nicodemus came and joined him. Nicodemus, another ruler of the Jews who had fear of man issues. There the two of them are, alone with the body of Jesus, preparing the body with spices and linen wrappings. 
It was customary in Jewish culture to provide a proper burial. It involved many spices, of course, to cover the smell of the body. And again, in our text here this evening, it says in verse 53 that the body was wrapped in a linen cloth. In John's Gospel, it says linen wrappings. This is different than some sort of a shroud. Every, every now and then, every few years, it seems like there will be a news story out where they think they found the shroud that Jesus was buried in. Well, he wasn't buried in a shroud. Buried with linen wrappings. That's an important distinction. And they had to move quickly. This was the day of preparation. It was the day before the Sabbath. It was a day a lot like today, a Friday, with the sun going down. The Sabbath about to begin. And God, through Joseph, provided a nearby tomb. They didn't have to go far. They could bury the body close by. Joseph put the body in a tomb he had made for himself, perhaps a cave. We find out from the other gospel accounts that there was a garden. And in that garden, he had made a tomb for himself, hewn out of the rock in a a nice area. But it was a brand new tomb near Calvary. Perhaps this was a uh, temporary measure. It was, of course, a very busy weekend in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Very important holiday was taking place in Jewish culture. It's also true that tombs would often be reused. You couldn't just get tombs anywhere, and of course it wasn't like today where you bought a plot and you put a body in a plot and that was it. There were these tombs where a body would lay until the next family member died, usually, and they would take the body out, they would put the bones in a bone box, and the next body would go into the tomb. But this was a new tomb. In Matthew, in Luke, and in John, each one of those accounts makes sure to say the tomb was new. And of course, in Luke's account, I like the way it was phrased here in verse 53. It's a tomb where no one had ever lain. A brand new tomb. It had never been defiled by a dead body. If you go back to the law, the Jewish law, and you look about what defiles people, what defiles certain things, a dead body would bring about ceremonial defilement. Well, Jesus' tomb had never been defiled by a dead body. After that, they prepped the body and had everything all set. The men would have rolled a heavy disc-shaped stone in front of the tomb, not a big boulder, not like a big ball, but a disc-shaped tomb. Would have been rolled in front of the entrance, a very heavy stone. It would have taken several men to move it. They perhaps got help. And Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, tells us that the two Marys were there. Mary Magdalene and and Matthew's endearing phrase, the other Mary. They were there, and they wanted to see where Jesus was buried. Matthew goes on to tell us something very interesting. The Pharisees heard about Jesus' body being buried in this place. And they had their own interaction with Pilate. They went to Pilate and said, Look, we think his disciples are going to take the body. May we go secure it? And they were permitted to go secure the tomb. It says that they set a seal on the tomb. What that means is perhaps, and probably most likely, with the help of Roman soldiers, they had a tamper-proof seal that was on there. If that stone was to be moved, they would know. And they set a seal on the tomb. 
And because Romans were involved here, it's likely that it was very well guarded. They secured the tomb. Well, this whole process of Jesus being placed in a rich man's tomb, it fulfilled prophecy, didn't it? Isaiah 53, that amazing account of the death of Christ in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. This whole process was fulfilling prophecy. God ordained these events. He fit all these events together just like this, didn't he? Isn't that amazing? Well, what do we make of all of that? Very, very interesting account. What do we make of that? Well, Joseph of Arimathea, as far as we know, is the only person who spent time exclusively with the lifeless body of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Up to this point, the only person who spent time exclusively with this lifeless body of Jesus Christ. Consider his experience that he had with the body in those quiet moments where he had the body of Jesus Christ and was around the body, preparing the body, wrapping the body. He had time in private to behold the body. In Isaiah 52, the chapter right before that amazing account of the death of Christ, it says that the Messiah's appearance would be marred beyond recognition. Marred more than any man, it says. Can you imagine being there with the body of Jesus Christ, so marred, wounds, dried blood? No longer was Joseph able to express faith to Jesus. He couldn't ask him a question as he could have before. But he was afraid. He was concerned with the approval of men. Surely, Joseph knew of Jesus' teachings and the, the teachings about Jesus that other men had spoken. You can just imagine there's Joseph with the body of Jesus Christ, the lifeless body. Perhaps he's recounting John the Baptist's words Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the body. Perhaps he was remembering what he had heard. Jesus taught his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And there he was looking at it. Maybe he remembered how Jesus would teach that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. And he was. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This was a demonstration of love, what Jesus did. 
God demonstrates His love toward you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. I think Joseph was getting it. He was, he was connecting some dots. Verse 9 of Romans 5, just an amazing verse the more and more I study it. Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Why did Jesus have to endure such a, a terrible, awful, horrifying death? Why did Jesus have to go through the cross? Because of the wrath of God. This was the wrath of God poured out on the Son of God. This is the wrath of God towards sin. The only feeling that God can have towards sin. It's the only right feeling to have towards sin. God's wrath. And Jesus had no sin. There was no sin found in him. Pilate inspected him. Herod inspected him. There was no guilt. Absolutely no guilt. Totally, perfectly pure. Yet, he endured the very wrath of God. And Joseph, with the body and with Nicodemus, they were looking at the result of the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died in our place for our sins. And he did so to satisfy the wrath of God. Not just that God would make an example and then he would still have more wrath to pour out, but that all of those who are in Jesus Christ are free from the wrath of God. There is no more wrath of God for you if you are in Jesus Christ. If you are found in Him with a righteousness that is not your own, but the very righteousness of God that is based on faith, there is no more wrath for you. You are totally, utterly free. All of that wrath was placed on your Savior. But for those who are not in Christ... There is still wrath. There will be punishment for that sin. That sin hasn't been paid for. That sin must be punished by a holy, just, eternal God. That sin will be paid for with a holy, just, eternal punishment. This offer of salvation stands. God demonstrating His own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can be saved from the wrath of God through His death. We have this little tract that's out on our resources shelf. How shall I go to God? This was written a long time ago. You can see how many words it has. Today's Generation can't handle this many words. <laughs> but let me just read to you the opening 
two sentences? Because that's an interesting question. How shall I go to God? And how someone answers that question will reveal a lot about what they think about God and what they think about themselves. Consider this. This is written by Horatius Bonar. How shall I go to God? He says, it is with our sins that we go to God. I'll just stop right there. Every religion in the world outside of biblical Christianity will tell you You've got to get rid of your sins before you can go to God. You have to do something to get that off of you before God will accept you. And here, this claim by this Christian is that it is with our sins that we go to God. He says, for we have nothing else to go with that we can call our own. This is one of the lessons that we are so slow to learn. Yet without learning this, we cannot take one right step in that which we call a religious life. We take our sins to God, and when we are coming to God in faith, and we recognize what Jesus has done, you know what he does with those sins? He forgives all of them. Past, present, future. Jesus took care of each and every one that those sins would be no more in his sight. I think at this point, it's safe to say that in Joseph's life, Joseph of Arimathea had overcome the fear of man, mustering the courage to ask for this body. Word had gotten around, Jesus is in Joseph's tomb. The Pharisees knew. They went and sealed it. The word was out. Joseph was a Christian. He had to drop his social relationships as his priority. He had to come to see Jesus as his priority. He was brought to a critical time in his life, wasn't he? And he had a decision to make. That's all of us. We're brought before this God. We're brought before this gospel. Do we choose the fear of God or do we choose the fear of man? Many of you are dealing with this in a, in a very intense way on a regular basis. Do you choose the fear and approval of God or do you choose the fear and approval of man? Do you associate with certain people because you're, you like your social context or do you risk all of that to associate with Jesus? We know the right answer, don't we? We know that Jesus is worth it. We should know that this life is nothing without Jesus Christ. Who are we to ever think? Anything we could accomplish in this life without Jesus would be worth it. Do you see the significance of Jesus in the life of Joseph. I hope you do. Do you see the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection for yourself? I hope you do. Do you believe in Jesus Christ and is your association with your Savior 
your priority? I hope it is. I hope it is. Because there is only one name under heaven by which we can be saved. That's the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.